podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. To find out more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now a message from the series, Subjects from the Sermon on the Mount. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can sing forgiven. Not because of what we've done, not because we're in church, but because you came, you died on a cross in our place as our substitute, and you rose again. And that's why we can sing forgiven, because you are a redeemer, you rescued us, you are a deliverer, and you are a king. And as we approach your word, Lord Jesus, we want to approach it as your word from the king, for the one who loved us, but yet rules us. And so I pray that as we begin this new series and as I have the privilege of opening the scriptures, that you would just just fill me with your spirit, that the kingdom of heaven may be proclaimed and announced in this church and in this city. And Lord, that every other church, whether it's Allen down at Southside or Neil at Kirk or, or Eden Village, the new church, or, or IPC or all these churches, Lord, in this town that are proclaiming the kingdom, that you would be in their midst as well and that we would see you do great things in this church and in those churches. Uh, so that your name is exalted in Savannah, not ours. That's what we want, Lord Jesus. And so if that's going to take place, I just pray that your spirit would enable me this morning to preach and proclaim you. Um, and that I would get out of the way and that you would uh, just fill me and empower me to do so. So that your name would be exalted. Pray in your name and for your reputation, Jesus. Amen. Thanks. You guys can have a seat. And grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, there should be one right in front of you in the seat. And turn to the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, um, bringing a brand new series today. And if you're new to CBC or haven't been here very long, kind of what we do is we usually take a book or a portion of a book of the Bible and we just kind of slowly work our way through it. Um, we're not in a rush. We don't try to rush through it. We want to have uh, just time to examine it and let God use that in our lives. And so what we're going to be doing for the next several months, and I do mean several, is we're going to be slowly unpacking the greatest sermon ever preached. And it wasn't by me, just in case you're wondering. Um, we're going to look at the portion of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. And, and it's called that, real creative, because Jesus preached it on a mountain. Okay, so I know somebody back in the day called it that. and So now it's the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and what it is, is it's the largest piece of teaching that we have in the Gospels from the Lord Jesus. It's, it's 107 power-packed verses. You can read through it in about 11 minutes if you just kind of slowly read through it. I did that this week. Um, we're going to spend five to six months doing it, though. So don't think 11 minutes is going to be enough. Um, but it has everything from marriage to temper tantrums to um, worry to the golden rule to money to false teaching to lust. It's like ragu. It's all in there. Okay, so we're going to be looking at it for the next six months slowly. Um, and we've entitled this sermon series, Subjects. Subjects. And here's why. Each gospel is a specific audience in mind when it was written. Okay? And each gospel has a specific thrust. The gospel of Matthew is specifically written to a Jewish audience. Okay? It's got a very Jewish flair. It quotes more Old Testament passages than any other gospel. And it's the point and the thrust of the gospel of Matthew is to show these Jews that Jesus is the promised king. He is the promised Messiah. Okay? So that's the whole thrust of the book. And one of the many purposes of the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, and we'll kind of unpack these in the next couple of weeks, is to show the subjects of the king how is it that they're supposed to live? 
whether they're living in 32 AD, 68 AD, 2011 AD, or even in the future kingdom for that matter. What do the subjects of the king, how do their lives look? Because for Jesus, let me tell you, being one of his subjects means something. It matters. And so what he's going to do is he's going to specifically talk to his disciples and say, this was what it means to be a subject of the king. Okay. So what we're going to do today, though, before we actually look at the sermon, we're going to talk about the king. Before we look at the greatest sermon ever preached, we're going to look at the greatest preacher to ever preach. Because there's something about when you know the preacher... When you know more about him, you understand him a little bit better. You understand what he says. For those of you who have been here a long time, you get me. I'm kind of this bouncing off the wall XP teacher from the greatest city in the world, Philadelphia, who did sweep the Atlanta Braves this week in case you missed it. Um, just, 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 you know. So, uh, so, that's, so you know me a little bit. because so You've been here a little bit, right? So you understand me and you get me. I want to introduce you to the king, to the preacher, so that when we jump in and we sit at his feet for the next five, six months you'll understand a little bit better what he is saying, okay? So we're just going to look at the king this morning. We're not even going to get into the sermon, which is actually found in chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're going to look at chapter 4 a little bit this morning. So Matthew chapter 4. And as you're finding it, let me kind of give you what Matthew has said so far. Chapters 1 and 2, Matthew has showed these Jews that Jesus is from the Old Testament prophecy. He is the son of David. He is the promised Messiah. His birth was of a virgin, just like Isaiah prophesied. Okay, so he fits the Davidic line and all the prophecies of the Old Testament. In chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 3, John the Baptist baptizes him. It's the beginning of his ministry. The father confirms him and affirms him as his son. And then he heads out into the wilderness for 40 days to show that he's the only one qualified to be the Messiah because he's the only one that can resist the temptation of the devil. He's the only one that is fully righteous. And so he comes out after 40 days being tempted by Satan and he's completely righteous and he is presenting himself now his ministry begins. And that's kind of where Matthew has, has been in the first four chapters. And real quick, we pick up in verse 12. It's what we're going to look at today of chapter 4. And this is what it says. Now, when he, that's Jesus, had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So Jesus hears that John the Baptist... His cousin, by the way, remember, his cousin's ministry is kind of winding down. He's been arrested. He's soon to be killed. And as his ministry is winding down, Jesus is just getting going. And it says he heads to Galilee. He withdrew. There's intent there. The word in the Greek, it means he purposely withdrew there. It's not just like, oh, I think it's a nice place this time of year. He on purpose goes to Galilee, where he was born, by the way, in Nazareth, is a little town in Galilee. And he heads and lives in a little village called Capernaum. Now, Some of you have been in church all your lives, and so you know Galilee, what that means. Some of you are brand new Christians, and you're like, what is Galilee? So let me show you a map. Galilee is actually a region. It's not a state. It's this blue area right here. Okay, the words might be a little fuzzy. The little lake there is called the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is from Nazareth, which is like smack daddle middle of Galilee. He's going to live in a little place called Capernaum, which is right on the sea, a little fishing village. Now, what you have to understand is some of you, again, been in church or you heard that before. Galilee for you is just a place in Israel. But you have to put yourself in the first century Jew's mind. When they hear Galilee, they're like, really? Galilee? He's from where? And here's why. Galilee was a hustling, bustling, big time area at this time. Lots of trade, lots of business going on. You see those little red lines that are coming from the top, Damascus? That is the I-95 of the day. Okay, and it cuts right through Galilee, cuts right through Capernaum, and it heads all the way down here, and it's heading to Egypt. It was the major trade route. If you were going anywhere, guess where you're going? Through Galilee, 
Big business. It's like the New York City, the Chicago, maybe the Atlanta of its day, okay? And because of that, it's a big melting pot. It's a big melting pot. Lots of people from all over, not just Jews. We got Gentiles, Rome, everybody all there. Why? Because there's business. There's money going on, okay? So it's big time. And all the Jews that are in the south, okay, the ones that are close to Jerusalem, where the holy people live, they kind of look at the Yankees and say, just like some southerners here look at Yankees and say, huh, the north, right? It's the same attitude. If you were really spiritual, you'd live in the south. You'd live close to Jerusalem, right? You'd live near where the temple is and where the priests are. That's where the real spiritual people live, right? And they kind of turn their nose up a little bit. And what Matthew is saying and what Jesus did is when he starts his ministry, when he shows up on the scene, he sets up shop. Where? Not in Jerusalem, but in a little hillbilly town in Paganville called Capernaum. And so all the Jews of the day would be like, no, not the Messiah. In Galilee? Yep, in Galilee. In fact, again, the... This is, I mean, if you read the, even the scriptures, even one of Jesus' own disciples named Nathaniel, when they, when they come to Nathaniel and say, we found the Messiah. They're like, where is he? Where is he? He's from Nazareth. And he's like, really? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like saying, Can I, does anything good come out of Georgia? I mean, really? You know, you went to UGA? Really? It's that kind of thing. I know. I'm on a roll this morning. I know. Right? I'm just making sure you're all awake. Right? That's the connotation. I can't believe... He's from, I can't believe he's from Galilee. But Matthew says this is on purpose. And why does he do that? Why does Jesus show up in Paganville? Verse 14. Key words. So that. You should underline in your Bible. So that. Why? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What did Isaiah say? He quotes Isaiah chapter 9. It says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's that whole northern area. That was their tribal area. And let me just tell you, nothing good ever came from Zebulun and Naphtali. Read the Old Testament. Nobody famous, no one worth anything that came out and made a big impact for the kingdom ever came out of those tribes. They were like the reject tribes. They were always going into idolatry, always doing the things that God didn't want. And he says, the land of Naphtali, Zebulun, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. He highlights there of the Gentiles, even though this is a Jewish letter. And people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. He's saying, this is what Isaiah said 800 years earlier, that Messiah would show up where? In the place of darkness. In the worst place in Israel, that's where Messiah was going to show up. He's going to be a great light there. And you say, what was the great light? Go back to Isaiah 9. You can read it this week. The next portion of that passage says, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The, the, the Messiah, the King, shows up where? In the Galilee of the Gentiles. And the Jews are going to say, oh. It's kind of like last week, my, my oldest child was sick. And so my wife, who always, obviously if the preacher's kids are sick, the preacher doesn't stay home. So my wife always has to stay home. My oldest is sick and, and she keeps one of the other children home, the six-year-old. And, and they're sitting at breakfast and my son says, you know, mom, he's real sad. I really wish I could have gone to church today. And my wife said, I know, I know. I'm sorry, son. But the six-year-old pipes up in the back. Not me! <laughs> and you think, the pastor's son said that? No. That's the same kind of response. The Messiah? Messiah in Galilee? And that's exactly what he does. 
He begins where there's most darkness, where there's most desperateness. And so what does that tell you about the preacher? Here's the first thing that tells you about the preacher this morning, as you get to know him before we hear his sermon, is that you need to to be willing to expect the unexpected with this preacher. Because he's going to do things that you may not like or you may not expect him to do, but he's going to do them anyway. And so when we're reading through this sermon, don't be surprised if the preacher, don't be surprised if the king does things a little bit different than you might do it. Don't be surprised if he says things that are exactly opposite of what you hear, what you hear. Because he says, you want to be blessed? This is how. And it's going to be exactly the opposite. He says, don't worry because of this. When he talks, he's going to maybe switch some things. He's going to surprise you. But do not be surprised. Okay? Because he is the king. And whatever he says is true. Don't be surprised if some of his subjects are not who you think they might be. Because a lot of times we think the guy that goes to church, the guy that is outwardly righteous, that's the subject. And he's going to say, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. Those aren't my subjects. It's the ones who are inwardly. Okay? Those Gentiles even. (gasps) For the Jews. Are you kidding me? But let me just kind of spoil the story for you. It's not by accident that he's in Galilee. You know where Matthew ends his gospel? Take Take a big guess. In Galilee? Most famous passage probably here in the Bible. Where does he give the great commission? Go and make disciples. Not in Jerusalem. Where is he at? Galilee. He does things a little bit different, but it's okay. Because he's the king. So don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Just understand whatever he says, whatever he does, is truth. Because he is truth. All right? First thing to know about the preacher. Let's continue in Matthew. Verse 17. From that time... Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Real short sermon, right? There's a couple things we need to unpack in that verse. Number one, what is he talking about when he's saying the kingdom of heaven? Okay, what does that mean? First of all, understand this. The kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the kingdom of God. You'll see these two phrases interchanged in the Gospels. So in in Matthew, for instance, he'll tell a parable about a mustard seed, and he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and he tells the parable. And then in Luke, he tells the exact same parable, except this time he says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Same parable, just interchangeable. And so in this portion of Scripture, it says he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Read the Gospel of Mark. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So the two are synonymous. First understand that. Second, understand this, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is not just merely something in the future. It is something in the future, but it's also something now. There's this tension in the scripture between the already and the not yet. There's things that Paul will say that this is absolutely true, but the culmination of it won't come place, take place until Jesus comes back. Okay, I like to equate it to this. It's the best thing I could equate it to in, 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 our, in our society. First-time parents, okay? First child parents, they, they're all excited. They're, they're pregnant. They're getting the little outfits with the little booties and the little, oh, look at the little diapers. They're so cute. They get the stroller. They get the crib. They get all the blankies. Oh, isn't this fun? And they're parents. They're absolutely mom and dad as that baby is still growing inside the mama. But the culmination of that deal isn't really take place until old boy shows up at the hospital. Okay, that's when it becomes real. When the sleep ends, okay, and the crying begins, and you actually have to use those little cute diapers, that's when the blessings are really culminated, right? There's still a parent back here. There's still a mommy and a daddy. That's the, that's the already. 
But it's not yet until a baby shows up. And that's the way the kingdom is. You right now are in the kingdom. If you are a child of the king, you're in the kingdom. But one day, guess what? Jesus is actually going to return physically and he's going to set up a kingdom. And it'll be culminated and it'll be inaugurated and it'll be a done deal. And he shows up in Israel saying, the kingdom's here. At one place, the the Pharisees accuse him of of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And he says, if if I cast it by, by the finger of God then you know the kingdom is in your midst. Idea, you see these miracles? These miracles prove that the kingdom is here. Later, he tells them, they're asking, when's the kingdom coming? He says, don't ask when the kingdom comes. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is in your midst right now. Okay? If you are a follower of Christ, then you're in the kingdom. All right? Now, there is a future kingdom coming, but he is ruling and reigning, and you are in his kingdom. So when we talk kingdom of heaven, it's this. The idea is the rule of Christ over you right now, which will one day culminate when he shows up. That's what we're talking about. Now, he shows up and he's offering the kingdom to the Jews. The Jews didn't want a Messiah who was going to pay for sins. They wanted a Messiah who was going to save them from Rome. So they reject the Messiah. And so the the, the physical kingdom is kind of on hold. But the spiritual kingdom is still going on right now. So understand when he says, kingdom of heaven is here, it's at hand. That's what we're talking about. I'm here. The rule of Christ is here. And there's a response then that Jesus says, because the kingdom is here, the key word in this verse is for, little Greek word gar. It explains, because the kingdom is here, what are we supposed to do? Repent. We're supposed to repent. Now, what does that mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It's not the six-year-old going to his sister and saying, sorry, I kicked you, sorry, and walking away. That's not repent. Repentance is not feeling sorry, feeling bad about something. At the core behind repentance is, is to turn or to return, okay? That, that's at the core, to actually change directions. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about repentance, to actually change directions. I was going this way, I do a 180, and I go this way, all right? That's repentance. And it's real significant, I think, that the first public words of Jesus in his ministry in this gospel, the, I mean, he talks to Satan, he talks to John the Baptist, but the first public words that he uses as he preaches is what? Repent. Turn. Turn. It wasn't, oh, let's talk about grace. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about all these things. Does Jesus talk about those? Yes. But only to those who repent. He says, repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. Repent. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. Repent. Why? Because people are headed in the wrong direction. And the only way if you're heading in the wrong direction to get to the right direction is to do what? Is to Turn. It's the turn. I mean, I have people, how do I get to your church? Turn east on 69th Street. Well, I'm going west. Well, you're never going to get here if you keep going west. You'll be in Garden City and you'll be in Pooler eventually, but you won't get here. If you're going to get here, you need to turn around. That's the idea behind repentance. He's saying turn. And here's what you need to understand about this preacher. Second thing, this is a preacher that expects his subjects to turn. He expects his subjects to change. He calls them to it. And the big question for me as I'm reading this passage is, okay, what am I supposed to repent of? What what am I supposed to turn of? And he doesn't say, which really bothers me. Because it's this kind of open-ended deal, right? It's second person plural imperative. That means it's for everybody. It's for Southerners, it's y'all. For us Northerners, it's you guys. Everybody, repent. Repent, turn. 
well, how am I supposed to turn and how am I supposed to repent if I don't know what I'm supposed to turn and repent of? I think it's on purpose. I think it's deliberate that it doesn't say anything, not because Jesus is being vague, because in other places in the gospel, he's very specific. The rich young ruler, you need to do this. Tax collectors, you need to do this. The woman caught in adultery, you need to do this. So it's not Jesus being vague. Here's what I think is going on. How do I know what to repent of? How do I know what to turn of? You will know when you start sitting at the feet of the preacher. When you start listening and you start putting yourself at his feet and he starts teaching, then you will know what he's calling you to repent of. And as he exposes you to you and you get to see yourself and you put yourself under his word, it'll be very evident those things where you have fallen short of the glory of God. It'll be very clear. And so when he says, you think you're so good, you think you've never killed anybody? How about that slander and gossip over there? How about yelling at your kids this week, Mr. Angry Man? How about that nasty email you sent? That's murder in my eyes. See, that's the place when he starts shining his light on those hidden areas. Because the, living, the word of God is what is living and active and sharp. And once you put yourself under the preacher and at his feet, that's when he starts to show you what it is you need to repent of. Okay, but you've got to understand right up front, he's calling people to turn. He is calling people to repent. And here's a challenge for us. Here's a challenge for you people who have been in the church all your life. This is tough for some of y'all because you've heard the Sermon on the Mount and you've gonna heard almost all these verses because they're some of the most famous verses in Scripture. And you're thinking, ah, oh, Sermon on the Mount, I know that one. I got that. The challenge for you guys is for you to sit under the king and say, do you know it or are you still turning? Because in my experience, in my walk with Christ, which is only about 12 to 14 years old now, is this. Is the more I walk with Jesus and the more I sit at the preacher, the more I have to repent of. Because the more evident I am of my sin. I thought, oh, once I get done cursing, I'll be a good Christian. right? Oh, once I stop drinking, once I stop smoking, I'll be good. And what I am now is, maybe not all the external things, but those hidden things in my heart, those motives, those 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 hypocrisy areas, those are the areas that God's light is shining on even more and more the longer I walk with Jesus. And so if you've been a Christian 20 years, please don't come into this room thinking, I know this already. Because you may know it here, but if you've ceased to repent of sin and you have ceased to turn, then you don't have it here or here. All right? The verb is a continuous tense in the original. It's not repent once. It is keep repenting. That's the way it can be translated. But I've been a Christian. That's right. Keep repenting until you stop sinning. And you won't stop sinning in your, until you're in a coma. And even then you probably will sin. Right? So there's continual repentance and there's continual realizing that we have fallen way short of the glory of God and that his grace is marvelous. All right? This is what you need to know about the preacher. He expects his subjects to turn. Whether they've been his subjects for five days or 50 years, he expects them to turn. Let's continue. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, this Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending the nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed All right, so we see the calling of four disciples, three of which are kind of the big three. They're the big famous ones, right? First one is Simon. The Hebrew name is Simeon. That's his real name. His birth name is Simeon. Jesus later later renames him Rocky, as I like to call him, or Peter, Cephas, Petros. It just means rock because he's going to be this rock, okay? So there's got Rocky, 
And then you have Andrew, his brother, who's the one who brought Peter to, to Jesus in the first place. Andrew doesn't get a lot of press. He actually was a follower of John the Baptist at one point. But that's his brother. And they are fishermen. And then he goes down the lake a little bit and you get the sons of Zebedee, James and John. All right? John, the author of the gospel and the letters. James, not the one who wrote the, the book of James. That's Jesus' stepbrother or half-brother. Uh, this is the James that was the first martyr in the apostles. They're real, these, these two brothers, they're, they're young guys and they're real fiery. They're called the sons of thunder because they want to call down fire from heaven and just smoke everybody that doesn't love Jesus. Okay? So they're called the sons of thunder other places. Those are his, his first disciples that he calls here. And they're all fishermen, right? And, and let me just blow the misnomer in the church that fishermen were a bunch of dumb, you know, hillbillies from, from the country. Okay? That's kind of, oh, Jesus rescued these guys from insignificance. Look, being a fisherman in Galilee was good business. All right? It's a booming area. Um, a fisherman wasn't going to be Donald Trump, but he was going to make some money. In fact, the sons of Zebedee, you read the gospel of, uh, of, I believe it's in Mark. It says they left their father with his hired servants. If you hired servants, then you got a couple boats. They're doing fine. Okay, they're making a decent living. And they're not morons. They're not just, oh, we're fishermen. <laughs> That's not them. All right, this is a major melting pot, major industrial area. They all speak Aramaic because that's the language everyone speaks. They probably speak Hebrew because that's what they speak in the temple. They speak Greek because that's the trade language of the day. Plus, Peter and John both write letters. And Peter's Greek is some of the best in the New Testament, by the way. Okay, scholars are like, wow, this is a fisherman? This is incredibly high-class Greek. So they spoke Greek. And they probably dabbled in a little Latin, too. Because the Roman Empire was the ones that were over this whole thing. That's four languages that they can speak. How many you got besides pig Latin and English? Right? Okay, so they're not morons. These are bright guys. They may be blue collar. They're regular, ordinary Joes. That's the point. And Jesus goes and he sees them working. And what he does is because he's the king and he does things unexpected, is he completely breaks protocol. Right? He does what's completely unexpected. He calls them to follow. And that day, the disciple chose his teacher. You went to a rabbi and said, I like you. Can I follow you along? Can you teach me? The student approached the, pup- the teacher. And he would say, yes. It's kind of like picking your college. Okay, I want to do this major, so I'm going to choose this college. I want to do this major, I'm going to choose this college. It was like that. Jesus flips that whole paradigm upside down and says, you, follow me. You, follow me. You, you too. Just like God the Father does, right? Same, same principle. That he initiates. That he draws. And he gives them this command in the middle of work. Again, Peter and Andrew, they are casting a net. They are in the middle of sea. They're throwing the net into the... They're mid-work. And Jesus says, follow me. Come on. And he gives them a command. Goes down the lake a little bit. The other guys are mending their nets. They're getting them ready to go out to work. They're with their daddy. He says, you too. Follow me. And what you need to know about this preacher and this king is a third thing. That he assumes the right to give commands. He assumes the position of authority. He expects his subjects to obey him. Right? And it's not just, you know, whoever wants to hear, it's you. Follow me. Often what happens in the Fowler house at night, at bedtime, I'll say, All right, y'all, time for bed. And no one moves. And I'm looking at my wife, I'm like, look at the kids, time for bed. Oh, we didn't know you wanted us to go to bed. We just thought you were announcing it. 
No, see, that's implicit in that statement, y'all. This is not a suggestion. Oh, it's, it might be a good time to put my head on the pillow now. This is a direction. You, in the bed, now. But I think sometimes we approach the scriptures and Jesus' words just like the children that say, oh, that's, that's nice, it's time for bed. And we look over and yeah, it's a good suggestion. Right? And Jesus is saying, no, go to bed, Now. When Jesus, the king, the preacher, gives instructions, he's not making healthy suggestions that might be nice for you. Okay? When he says, this is where true happiness is, this is in a command. It's not, oh, that's nice for Jesus. When he says, this is causing you to stumble and sin, this computer is caused, get rid of it. It is not, well, that's a good idea. It's a do it. It's not, love your enemies. Oh, that's good in theory. It's, Love your... This is not suggestions. Do not worry. Right? Stop being a grumpy hypocrite. These are not Jesus saying, this will be a nice thing for you to do. This is not, oh, that's great for my husband. This is good for my kids. That's nice for that church over there. When Jesus says something, he assumes his people are going to listen. Because they're his subjects. He assumes the position of authority. All right? Understand that. This is not the republic of God. This is not the democracy of heaven. This is not the United States of Jesus. This is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom, you have a king, one of them, and he is it. And so when he says, this is what I say, he expects subjects to follow because he's in command. You need to know that about him. So he shows up and he says, follow me. Follow me. And what do they do? They follow. And notice both times it says immediately. They leave mid-throw. Boom. They leave their nets in the boat. Peter and Andrew, verse 20. The the sons of Zebedee, they leave daddy right there in the boat with the hired servants, verse 22. And they leave their father and they follow him. See, that's what the king assumes is going to take place when he gives instructions. Because he has the right to do it. Right? And notice what else he has the right to do. He has the right, and it's implied in the text, to change things. To call the shots. He says to Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Implicit in the word I will make is change, isn't it? I'm going to turn you into something that you are not right now. You are fishing for fish. I'm going to change that and I'm going to fish, make you fish for men now. So back in 2001, I'm a PE teacher and a coach. God says, I'm making a change. You're going to seminary. And I say, but God, I don't like school. That's okay. Boom, move to Dallas. Then I come back as associate pastor in Buford, and I tell my wife, we're going to be here four or five years at least. Kind of just relax. It's been a strenuous couple of years. year and a half later, God says, time to go to Savannah. My wife says, but we're going to be here four or five years. God makes a change. He is in authority, and he has the right to do so. All right? And so as a subject, we follow. When he says this, that's what we do. He makes a change. You're fishing for fish. Now you're fishing for men. And don't get the idea. Don't put 2011, two guys fishing on the boat with their hat and their fried chicken in the cooler and sweet tea. What's up, Bubba? You could watch the game. You watched Georgia blow it last night. And they did. You watch that? That's not fishing in the first century. Okay, it's labor intensive. It's a big net. It's net fishing. It's dragging. It's sometimes no results. It's hard work. That is what's going on. And Jesus is making a change now. And, there's a, and, and this is important you get this because there's modern evangelical, evangelistic 
models out there that think it's just like, you know, you kind of throw your lure out and you kind of bait them. Let's bait those non-Christians in here and we'll trick them. And then we got them. And that's the idea of evangelism. That's not the idea of what, that's foreign to the text. The idea is you're casting the net and you're trying to actually, it's exactly opposite of fishing. In fishing, you're trying to kill the fish. Evangelism is not killing the fish. It's rescuing them. If you get into the boat, you're good here. We're saving people from destruction. We're casting the net. Here's the kingdom. Here's the gospel. And we're rescuing people. So there is a change. There's a change going on, right? And, and so understand that the king has right to make changes. The king has right. And let me just say this. This is a great text for some people. To, this is what I call a guilt trip text, right? Oh, you ought to quit your job. You know, and, and sell the car and move to Cuba and be an evangelist. That's what, you know, that's kind of the, the missionary. That's what God's calling everyone to do. Sell your car, sell your house and move to Cuba. That's what, it, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not asking everyone to move to Cuba and sell the minivan. Only 12 guys in Jesus's ministry were called to leave everything and leave their jobs. Only 12, the future apostles. In fact, often what you see Jesus do is a guy gets healed and wants to follow Jesus. And he says, stay here. And go tell everybody about what I've done. All right. God is not calling everyone to sell the many men and move to Cuba. The point is not, everyone's got to sell everything. The point is, everyone should be casting a net. That's the point of the text. That's the application. Are you throwing a net? Are you throwing your net at Gulfstream? Are you throwing your net on Mulberry Avenue? Are you throwing your net on your soccer team? Are you throwing your net at Armstrong Atlantic University? Are you throwing your net in your home? That is the point of what Jesus is saying, all right? Not let's all move to Cuba. It's wherever God has you, throw your net. Because if you're not throwing your net, then you're not following. Now that is true. Wherever you had, we don't want a bunch of people just kind of, oh, we want to be on staff at CBC. Great, you're going to be working for a dollar a week. That's not what we want. We want you, wherever you are, throwing your net. Because that's what Jesus wants. Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And he wants you doing that wherever God has you. Okay? And if he says now, move to Cuba, then you move to Cuba. But if he says, do it at Gulfstream, do it at SCAD, do it in your home with those three precious kids, and you do it there. That's the point. Whatever it is, you follow what the king has said. Because he is in command. And he has the right to make changes. All right? Three things so far. You need to know about the preacher. He's in command. He does things a little bit different. He asks his people to turn. Let's continue on in the text. Verse 23. And he went, that's again Jesus, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Three facets of Jesus' ministry we see in this passage. Number one, he teaches in the synagogues. All right? This is what you constantly see through the gospels. In fact, this is where all the big fights take place with the Pharisees in church, basically. Right? Jesus stands up, his first sermon in Nazareth, his hometown. He stands up, he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61. He reads it and says, this is about me and it was fulfilled today. He closes it up and says, I know you don't like me because I'm from this town. And a prophet does not have any honor in his hometown. And I know you want me to do a miracle, but I'm not going to do a miracle. And they get mad and they try to kill him. His first sermon. That's constantly what you see as he teaches. But that's what he's doing. He teaches in the synagogues. Second thing, it says he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. It's, it's really what he announced earlier. Repent. The kingdom is here. But here it says it's the gospel. What does gospel mean? It's the good news. I'm here. Finally. The promised Messiah. Good news. Repent. Forgiveness in me. Believe. Here I am. His constant message. 
Repent, believe the gospel. And how do they know that he is who he says he is? How do they know he's Messiah? Because the third facet of his ministry, he heals every disease and every affliction among the people. How does he validate that he's really the Messiah? Through all the miracles. Through all the miracles. Now understand this. Check your Jewish history. There hasn't been a miracle in Israel for 800 years. You know the last guy to do a miracle in Israel before Jesus shows up? It's a guy named Elisha. Elisha. We just talked about him last week, right? In fact, some people think that there's all these miracles throughout the Bible. Actually, miracles in the Bible are very rare, believe it or not. There's only six people or groups of people in all the scripture that do miracles. You know who the first man in the Bible to do a miracle? When I mean miracle, I mean God using a man to do something through that man, not God doing something supernaturally. I mean a miracle like God using a guy. First guy in all the Bible, you know who it was? Moses. Then the second guy, Joshua. And then you don't see miracles for several hundred years until a guy named Elijah shows up. And then who's the next person? Elisha. Then you have 800 years. And a guy named Jesus. And who's next? His apostles. See the pattern? It comes in twos. But see, no miracles in Israel for 800 years. And all of a sudden a guy shows up and he's healing every affliction. You think there's going to be a little bit of hype? And don't, don't look at Benny Hinn and the faith healers and think, oh, Jesus was, guy has arthritis and he's dragging him across in front. You know, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about radical miracles. It'd be the equivalent of someone going down to Kerry Hilliard's and bringing all the cancer patients and all the HIV patients and all the paralytics and, and, and someone who's on their deathbed and in the ICU and they've been paralyzed or in a vegetative state and all of a sudden they get up. That's what we're talking about. I mean, bona f- not all oh, I had headaches and now they're gone. I mean, we're talking about bona fide. This guy couldn't walk and now he's out playing baseball. That's what, and, and so it's, it's just his fame is just booming in Israel. And so it says in verse 24, his fame spread throughout all Syria, which is, by the way, a Gentile area. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with diseases, with pains, oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Again, go to the map. A lot of these places he's mentioning, Gentiles, Decapolis, see it over here? It's all over here, beyond the Jordan, all over there. Everybody from Syria, Gentiles, Jews, everybody is coming to see Jesus because he's healing. And what is Jesus' response to this? Does he rent out big stadiums and have big healing crusades? What does he do? Chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, the verse divisions are not original. They're added a thousand years after. The story continues, okay? So don't see 5 and say, oh, well, that should be next week. No, there's a flow here. So he sees the crowds. All these people, he sees them and he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples, the 12 guys, came to him. All the crowds, all these people, all this stuff. Oh my goodness, Jesus. Oh my goodness, Jesus. Oh, look at Jesus. His disciples come to him and he opens his mouth and he taught them. Taught who? Taught the disciples. These 12 guys. This entire sermon on the mount is not to everybody, it's to these 12 guys. Now, everyone else is going to be kind of eavesdropping. And they're getting to hear it, but it is directed at these 12 guys. And what this shows me here is this. The last thing that we need to know about this preacher. He's not really interested in wowing the crowds. He's not interested in just kind of miracles and and everything else. If anything, he's telling people, hush, when he heals them. What is he interested in? He is interested in teaching his subjects. He's looking for some students 
Jesus is not looking for a cheerleading squad, J-E-S-U-S, yay. He's not looking for bandwagon folks. He is looking for students that he can teach that are going to listen to his word and follow him. That's what he's looking for. He's just looking for some folks to sit at his feet and listen and then be doers of his word. Look, if you're here this morning and you're, you're looking to come to this church and just kind of fill your mind with a bunch of information and not be a doer of the word, you probably, you probably shouldn't come for the next six months. Because what we want in this room is people who are going to sit at the feet of Jesus to listen to the king and then go do what he says. Even if that's just five of us. He's got a crowd. He's only interested in 12. Just 12 guys. And what we want is people who are going to be serious about the kingdom of God in Savannah, Georgia now. That's what we're looking for. And so the question as we move into this new series are... Are you willing to listen to a preacher like that? Are you willing to listen to a king and a preacher who does things a little bit different? Are you willing to respond to a preacher and a king who says, turn from that? Are you willing to listen to a preacher who assumes that he has a right to give you instructions and command, even if it means change? Are you willing to sit at the feet of a preacher who's not really doesn't really care about how excited he makes you. But he just wants you to know him and to listen to him and to understand him. Are you willing to sit at his feet? Are you willing to listen to that kind of preacher? That's the question as we open the sermon next week. And if you are, then come ready to hear and come ready to obey. Let's pray and let's worship that king. Lord Jesus, we worship you and we honor you as the king. And we're hungry for what you have to say. Lord, I pray that you would use not only just this, this intro this morning, but these next five or six months to radically change us as people. To radically change our church. So we might see your kingdom grow in this city. Lord, there's people this morning that need to repent and turn. There's people this morning who need uh, to change and that you've been calling them to do so for a long time and they're just being stubborn. I just pray that you would impress upon their heart even now what it is they need to do and how they need to respond. There's people in this room that, that are just like some of those people in the crowd. They just kind of want to see what's going on. And I pray that you would speak to them and they, you would show them that you, the Lord Jesus, left heaven came to earth, died on a cross for their sins and rose again. And that by faith in the gospel, the good news of the kingdom being here, they can have eternal life and be part of it. Lord, as we just worship you, I just pray that you would be honored and you be glorified. And as we go to our classes, that our children from, from infants up through, through college would hear about the king and hear about his goodness. And that we as adults would follow you as his subjects be honored in that as we worship you, Lord Jesus, for your name's sake. Amen. Stand with me and let's worship the King.